Seymour Orner was stationed in the South Pacific during World War II. The story goes that he wrote a letter to his wife, Lorraine, every single day. She didn't write back that often. Seymour responded to the prolonged periods of silence in one letter he sent to her where he wrote, Another day and still no word from you. Seventy years later, author Peter Orner has those letters. They were sent by his grandfather, Seymour, and the all-too-few ones from his grandmother, Lorraine. Seymour pleads with Lorraine to send him a letter, to send some word from back home for him to read. Writes Peter Orner, Maybe we read because we seek that word from someone, from anyone. A lot of us read because we seek words from Peter Orner. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Listeners of Book Public know Peter Orner as the co-host of the Book Public series, The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner. I spoke to him about his new book, Still No Word from You. Tell me about the title of this book. The title comes from a letter that my grandfather wrote to my grandmother during World War II. My grandfather was a, uh, a captain of a LST, which is a weird small ship uh, called a landing ship tank. It basically um, landed tanks on beaches and stuff. And anyway, my, my grandfather was um, a, a lawyer and insurance executive. And during the war, he volunteered. He was too old to be drafted or anything. And he volunteered. He was like 39 and 40 and um, ended up going to the Coast Guard. And he was so good at that. He was just a, you know, a very good sailor. You know, the Navy took him and they eventually made him a captain of a, of a ship. Anyway, um, that's not what your question is. <laughs> but, but he was in the war uh, and he was in the South Pacific. And I have, and I, I've had for many years, uh, all of his letters that he wrote to my grandmother. And um, pretty literally, there's a letter a day the time that he was gone which was about almost two years if not a little more so literally a letter a day <laughs> and the, I've, I've been reading these letters for years and um i even used them in a novel once um but he, he the, the the issue seemed to be that um that she wasn't writing him back <laughs> that, that he would write her and my grandmother uh would not write him back and um this went on and on. I mean, every letter is like, how come you don't write me? Tell me what's going on, what's happening at home. And I think my grandmother's just having too good a time without him. <laughs> um, they didn't maybe have the best marriage. And, uh, you know, she didn't have a lot of time on her hands. Even though she was not fighting a war, she was had two kids to raise. And that's probably even busier than he was. So anyway, um, in one of the lines, one of the letters he says, you know, it's been such and such uh, length of time and, and still no word from you. And I, uh, I, that struck me um, as being uh, uh, sad and, uh, <laughs> and, and kind of poignant and also pointed to my grandmother having a life, um, which I thought was really interesting. So that's a very long-winded answer. No, it's that's a... where that title comes from. And I guess the you know, how it relates to the book is that, you know, this idea of like, you know, we're all sort of kind of waiting for word from somebody, aren't we? 
Yeah, that that says it. I mean, it's enigmatic, but that really says a lot to contextualize even some of the other things I'm thinking about that happen in this book. So the selections here are in categories, but I see these sections morning, mid-morning, noon, 3 p.m., dusk, and night. So I want to ask you about these sections. How did you hit on this method of organization for what, like, 107 chapters. I, know, I mean, we all go through this problem of how to structure things, you know, especially I tend to write in pieces, you know, and so I'm always trying to figure out how they go together. And in this case, um, a couple of books that I was thinking a lot about and that appear in the collection or the book or whatever you want to call it, memoir, are books that take place in one day. Um, very famously, uh, you know, Ulysses Joyce, a book that I that I teach and revere and and think is hilarious um, every time I read it, and every time I read it, I usually don't finish it. I should say, but it's it's hilarious, and it's also you know just kind of the, the ultimate example of like what occurs in one day is infinite, and um, and another book uh, that I also talk about in 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 this book, a wonderful book by Bernadette Mayer, who's a, a really great living poet, maybe one of our best living poets. I believe she's in her 90s now. And she wrote a book called Midwinter Day, and it takes place on a single day uh, in 1977, I believe. And in that book, um, she literally covers from morning to night uh, her life with her family, her husband, um, and her kids. And it's, you know, she's making dinner <laughs> and writing. She's having sex and writing. She's taking out the garbage and writing. It's just like everything in that one day. And, you know, like, like Joyce, it's, again, it sort of hits home that idea of like, you know, if you really think about one day, it's, it can be, you know, as monotonous and monumental as one day it can be. So that was a, a part of this book. And the other, I think the the reason that I ultimately decided to structure the book around the day was that I that I had a book on my shelf for years um, by a woman named Ida Bigis, and that book is um, called Light, and it's about uh, Monet's garden at, at, at Giverny, I think is how you pronounce it, and uh, it takes place in one day as well. And in that, in the, in the opening of that book. Um, it starts beautifully where Monet is sort of chasing the moment just before dawn, not when the light has actually happened, but just before dawn. I just, I was really struck by this way of thinking um, about a single book being a single day. Well, and you say something similar. Uh, so light is a work that you talk about um, much later on. It's the 18th piece in the book. And the Bernadette Mayer is 79th, if we're keeping score. Right. But all the way back in, at the very beginning of the book where you talk about James Salter's dusk, you do allude to this idea of being, quote, drawn to the moments before a story becomes a story. So it's like being drawn to the moment before the light, right? It's just a, such a very interesting kind of uh, pattern that I'm hearing from you. But I do want to say this before before I lose it, that um, 
about Bernadette Mayer and Midwinter Day, you said, you say in the book, I'm going to proclaim, ordain, howl to the void <laughs> that this book constitute the greatest celebration of family life ever written by an American. And then you have this line that says, unpaid bills and laundry, if you think they can be separated from love, you don't live in the world. So uh, that really uh, stuck with me. And, and I have to tell you, I did not know about Bernadette Mayer. I hate to always admit my ignorance to you about readers, but this is another beautiful thing about your work, this book and, and Am I Alone Here and so many things that you write is that you bring to your readers m more to read. So we get to read your stories, your words, and your words about these books, and then we go chasing after, you know, uh, Eva Feiges and, and everybody else. <laughs> so, yeah, and I mean, I, you know, I, I appreciate that. I also, I also, you know, I worry sometimes that, you know, like, you know, when you talk to book people, you know, I was like, have you read that? Have you read that? Have you read that? And it gets, I, I hate to be one of those people, you know what I mean? And, and the fact of the matter is that no one's read everything, number one. And number two, there's so many books that have been, you know, kind of that you miss for whatever reason, you know, and I, I love those kind of conversations. And I absolutely, many of the books that I write about are books that somebody else told me, hey, you know, you, you ever read this book by Burnett Mayer, you know, where she just writes from one day from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And I should say about that book, she says, and I think I believe her, that she literally wrote it across mm -hmm. that one day. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was the book. And it's just an amazing kind of thing to, comp to contemplate, especially if you, if you read it, because it isn't just a recording of mm -hmm. what she's doing and thinking about but it, it, it roams as far as the imagination can roam. So she's all over the place because she's all over the place in a single day. She's not completely present in her own life much of the time. And that's part of the beauty of the book. Well, you write about a lot of women in this book, and we've, we've named a few. And I'm thinking also about your mother, though. This book is, is a lot about your mother and... And even in a way about your mother's reading life, not just your reading life, but your mom's in a way, and your mother's notes in the margin. Um, can you share a little bit about that story about the 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 little note that you found in a in a book that your mom had read that that your mom wrote? Sure, I'm. Uh, you know, it's funny. I'm in Chicago um, for Rosh Hashanah, and uh, I'm in my mom's office. Uh, she's 85 and running for re-election of the uh, North Shore Water Reclamation District trustee. Many listeners are in her district. Please vote for her in November, uh, <laughs> the Democrat in that race. But I'm looking at her books here, and she's got um, Little Women, <laughs> and then Crime and Punishment, Art of Darkness, Look Homeward Angel, Emma. So for some reason, Anne Rand is stuck in there. I'll have to talk to her about that. Um, <laughs> Uh, Thackeray, uh, Flowering Judas, uh, Catherine Ann Porter. Anyway, um, my mom's a big reader. Uh, and the, the story, the essay you're talking about is, um, is, has to do with my leafing through her copy of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's, uh, Coney Island of the Mind. And 
seeing some notes that she wrote at I believe the time around the time that book came out in the late late 50s 59 58 and um, she makes a little note in the margin of a, of a poem and uh, it kind of led me to imagine my mom arriving from uh, you know fairly smallish town in, in Massachusetts um, into you know marrying my dad and moving to, to Chicago and sort of just being blown away by um by the city and life in the city and i was imagining her you know very young uh married to my father also very young and um i just was trying to imagine what it was like to be reading this sort of um you know kind of beboppy jazzy collection <laughs> of poems and you know kind of just um being very excited about living and uh uh so that kind of led to a you know, my trying to imagine what she was thinking when she made that note. That's such a lovely story. I just love that story, being uh, able to see you. her, her something that she's written in the margins of that book. Thanks. So this book is something like your previous book of essays, Am I Alone Here?, um, in that it's very much about other works of literature, and it's also very much about your reading life and your family. But this one, I don't know what it is. It's, it, it feels different. It, it manages something different. I was trying to figure out what, what that was about. Um, we're all different, I guess, or, or today. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> age. <laughs> We, I mean, I think I, what I mean to say is we approach our reading differently at different – and you and I have talked about this a lot – at different stages in our lives. Right, um, right. And, and the same is true of our writing, but the, I, I can't put my finger on it. It's something else. It seems to me like you're coming at the work with the same unapologetic, unabashed <laughs> – um, I'm thinking, I wrote down the other this other line where you say, I have a friend who said, I practice a form of nostalgia that borders on hysterics. And and I take that like as a very positive things, a thing and how we try to av avoid hyperbole when we're talking about works of literature. But right. there's still all of that here, but I'm perceiving, I don't know what, I can't put my finger on it. I can't characterize it in any way, but there's something... Maybe it has to do with the passage of time, or some. There's something there, but I, I love, I do love um, reading about Mrs. Angerman <laughs> and a lot of the hearkening back to childhood from this vantage point. I think it's, I think it's so, so special. So there's a lot of that interplay of, um, of time. Um, and I know that w that when you approach your your reading and your writing life, it, you know it, it's it's not like it's so calculated, you know. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what I'm chasing after here. I have a page of notes about this. I want to ask ask Peter why this is so different. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I you know I always appreciate it. Yeah, and and you know you're you're. You're the kind of reader I'm trying to talk to, and and you know I I wish I could answer it. I I mean I, you know I don't know. I think it has to do. I mean 
I didn't want to write the same book. Um, I promised myself after um, the last book of essays that I wasn't ever going to do anything close to a memoir again. And, you know, I turned around and I do it again. And so I was very conscious of, you know, why do this if it's the same uh, book again? And I, I think the difference is, is that this one, um, I hope, has, has more unity. The pieces were sort of written to literally speak to each other, not accidentally speak to each other like mm-hmm. the last time around. Um, I think I was being, you know, I'm not very deliberate in, in, you know, in method, in method um, at all, but I, I think that the, uh, the same consciousness, um, you know, I, you, I, I, I was more, um, I was, I was literally trying to kind of uh, create some unity of conversation with myself, if that makes any sense. It does. It, it does make sense. I thought I had a clue when I got to um, this chapter 73 in my notes in the 3 p.m. section. <laughs> so it's um, where you write about Chekhov, who needs no extra context, as you and I both know. But you do say, hail Chekhov for letting the most minor of enigmas stand without comment. And you're at the Dunkin' Donuts in Grantham, New Hampshire, on February 12, 2020. <laughs> and that's right around the time we're all learning about this strange flu, this virus, and people are popping out of donut shops wearing masks, and there are free samples of uh, a sandwich, of some, a sausage sandwich of some kind. Right. <laughs> and then after... breakfast sandwich. Yes. <laughs> and then... Which is sort of like the old breakfast. Duncan, <laughs> that's what you said. <laughs> um, and so then, suddenly, you you start to talk about Myra, and you say, "No one loved her, and her life was passing by miserably, without affection, without the sympathy of friends, and without any interesting acquaintances. What a terrible thing it would be if she fell in love with her position." And then you say. Imagine the calamities if our if our stay, stray daydreams came true. <laughs> so I kept sort of like, okay, if he talks about Chekhov, there's a there's a clue there about this whole book, <laughs> and that's what I came up with. But it, you know, no. <laughs> well, I think you're right. I, mean, I, think <laughs> I think that's pretty good. I I, I think um, I think it does have a, a lot to do with something. You know, it's a cliche. You know, like be careful what you wish for kind of thing and and you know i think that i think that's a that's a cliche that that stands very true i think and i i think chekhov's um story in the cart addresses that like no one ever has you know it's a it's a it's a, a woman who is um you know it's a school teacher and like you said unappreciated and and, and sort of miserable in her life but also proud of herself too she has a great deal of authority. She has respect, even though she does not have love at all. But she considers this drunken landowner that is a single and sort of imagines what it's like, would be like to be with him for a few minutes and thinks that's actually could be a wonderful thing. And then Chekhov just slams the door in it because it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because she doesn't want it to happen, ultimately. And I think... You know, I think, um, you know, us daydreamers, um, 
you know, always need a reality check mm-hmm. in the sense that the daydream may be the thing, the life that we're living, which is um, wonderful too, you know? <laughs> and I, I think that's, I think maybe that you're right. I think that does have to do um, with what this, this book might be about in the sense of like, again, it's, it very comes very, very close to cliche, but you know, the miraculousness of a day. You know, and and if we just pause to think about it, which I rarely do, you know, <laughs> and so I, when I write about it, at least I'm, I'm desperately trying to do that. And I was, you know, kind of clinging to um, this idea of, you know, the wonders of, of the daily life that we generally think is um, not so exciting. Well, I don't know. That reminds me a little bit of something that you said about... Um the idea of repetition in your books at a certain point in the book, I'm recalling where you say something like in the context of a story about, about your father, that the stories are are repeated and they don't get lost. And, and you say something like they get repeated into oblivion or something, but the idea of repetition is so important. And, you know, so the idea of cliche as like, Oh, this repeated thing. But I think it's, I think it's very important because I mean, if you, and I'm so, I'm stating, I'm so stating the obvious. If you, if you encounter it in Chekhov on, you know, on a day when you need to encounter it in Chekhov, like, you know, that's a good thing. That's a, that's a very positive thing. But I'm also thinking about, um, we learned so much in this book too. Um, I mean, I, I certainly did about besides authors that, that I'm not super familiar with, but then also some of the, the tragic stories of some of these authors. And so, uh, I mean, I've heard about Maeve Brennan, of course, but I was not that familiar with her story. And then, so the, the other miraculous thing that emerges from this book is, I mean, part of the time as I'm reading about these authors and some of the some of the terrible things that happened to them, is that's what makes the fact that their writing exists even more miraculous to me. Right, it's like how right. in the world? Yeah, Mae Brennan had it had it pretty rough, you know, um, with uh, alcohol problems and, and mental um, mental health issues for sure, and so it is kind of remarkable. But it isn't remarkable that, that anybody is able to get it down for a little posterity, you know? Yeah. And Brennan's just a great, you know, great example of, of what survived, you know, what was really pretty much a wreckage of a, uh, you know, her life was ended, in a, you know, fairly, um, pretty roughly, let's mm-hmm. say. This idea about, um, you know, sort of covering, um, the smallness and the bigness of life in in the story that transpires in one day. Um, when I got to the the chapter about Rita Dove's work, the sentence, the notion of our being intact in stillness is ultimately an illusion. I mean, that's a, that's about bearing witness, but but it's also I, I take it also to mean like. Yeah, you f- you feel like you're standing, you know, like you're standing still in one day, like nothing's happening, but there's a lot happening in one day. Uh, so I like I like those kinds of connections, um, 
that I encounter sort of on my own as as a reader, just kind of going through um, and and making these small discoveries that maybe I need to need to make at a certain point. Um, but that in particular stayed with me. I'm, uh, this book is is um, underlined and highlighted <laughs> and multiple colors, and then I have a notebook full of notes. So this is all these like these gems that I wanted to like post on social media and and give you credit, of course. But I mean, <laughs> these literary tattoos, you know, these kinds of things, they're they're all over uh, this book. But I wanted to ask you the section, the noon section. I went through and there, so you talk about, let's see, Yoel Hoffman, Bed Howland, James Joyce, James Allen McPherson, Terrence Hay, all in one section. So anybody that I, that I just mentioned there, can you choose one lightning round and, and tell, tell me what you think? Just first thing that comes to your mind in, in the context of this book. What? You know, I think the Rita Dove pieces in in noon, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and that one um, should just open to. Uh, I mean, I'll just read the first line. Uh, I'll be doing something, anything, the dishes, and I'll look out the window at the road, the carless, quiet road, and I'll see myself falling from where, nowhere, just falling, or worse, infinitely worse, my daughter or my son falling, falling. And I'll be reminded again of Rita Dove's Zeppelin rising and the three men, the one who jumps off early and lands safely, the one who hangs on, and the other one, the third man, who, as the airship Akron rises higher, higher, loses his grip and lets go. And, you know, it's a, it's a scene in a poem where a man is standing that night, I believe, um, Thomas in of Thomas and Beulah fame of Rita Dove's um, uh, book of that title, uh, a married couple named Thomas and Beulah. And Thomas has witnessed this uh, blimp disaster. And, you know, like I described, one man lands safely, um, another uh, hangs on and rises with the blimp. I guess I was just thinking a lot about uh, when that guy falls the one who rises with the blimp when he falls that where she describes him clawing the air, mm-hmm. you know, that when you claw the air, there's like nothing, you know, when you claw something, you have to you need something to claw. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Dove like realizes that that action is so futile. Right. I mean, he can't, the air isn't giving him any, any grip. Right. And um, it just struck me as just being like, something is it's an image that has haunted me like i described and i I just to me that happens throughout the day you know what i mean where where i just have you know horrible imaginings i mean i i i don't think this is a dark book because like there's a lot of survival in it but um that guy doesn't survive and the poem is as much about the guy who doesn't survive as the one who watches and you know is the guy who watches a survivor yeah he gets through the day but it's not without a, a lot of tough stuff have ha, having had to endure you know and i think i at the end of that piece in this piece i talk about you know is it it is safe to be the watcher but but how safe how safe because he's got to carry that image around 
Uh, why that happened in the middle of the day of my day in this book, <laughs> I'm not sure. But, you know, it's just like there's constant warnings, constant warnings. And uh, there's something about the vividness of that poem um, that that struck me as being appropriate for the glare of noontime, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, what? when I read that the first time, I flipped all the way back over to, to the very first piece in the book. And I knew right where it was. It was the second page of that piece where you're describing your mother and you say, um, I know I read something in her eyes as if she'd already taken off. My mother, the sound of her splashing, scrubbing, and then stillness. I don't know. There, there, is, there is this very interesting conversation within the book. The, the idea of stillness, and it's not the same idea as still, no word from you, and we're not going to diagram sentences here and talk about <laughs> Uh, parts of speech, but there's a, there's this idea that recurring for me that was so so beautiful. But I, I want to ask you too. There's poetry here. Tell us about poetry. Tell us about what, what you think about poetry. I love poetry myself. I and it's, I say this all the time. It's my first love, and I don't write it because I'm a terrible poet. But I love to read it, and I, and I love to read about it. But you've, you've, you approach poetry the way that you approach stories and novels. And, and you almost don't even have to tell us what the genre is. And we're, we're in there, you know, moving through the, through the action or the emotion or whatever it is. But what is it that m makes you pull the book of poetry off the shelf? Here's where I get a little, um, like, aggressive <laughs> in the sense of like it's isn't it a shame how removed most people are from poetry as opposed to you know maybe more in the past or even you know if you think about um other cultures uh where where poetry is is very much a part of everyday experience you know i i i can recall somebody once telling me that when the mexican poet octavio paz passed away um and maybe this is apocryphal but you know, people were weeping in the streets, you know, mm -hmm. and Paz is not an easy poet, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not as if we're talking about, you know, like a simplistic, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, somebody who, you know, who, whose work was somehow accessible, right? Um, I think everybody read Paz, even though he was difficult. And it seems to me that we, you know, we're, we, we're cut, too cut off, you know, from that, I, for whatever reason, whether it's academia or whether it's this idea that you know certain 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 literature is only for certain people, I don't know. It just bu bugs me, and so you know, I'm not a literary critic at all, and I, I don't know much about poetry. That's just the honest truth. But like you, I read a lot, and I don't necessarily know technically, you know, even though you know, I I I, I sort of can read it really slowly and carefully but that doesn't mean i know what a villanelle is <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> and so um and barely you know some of the other ones which you know sonnet i mean i sort of know what a sonnet is but nonetheless i i couldn't get through the day i couldn't get through my life and not to mention any kind of writing life without uh reading poetry and the, the basic thing is is because as a fiction writer i have to pay attention to um sentences and language and rhythm and i can i can every day 
learn so much about that by reading a great poet. So yeah, for me, it's just like an essential thing. It's not like I, it's like I love to read poetry. It isn't it's just like part of just a part of the deal, you know? It's a it's a part of the deal, and uh, you know, sadly, I think a lot of people feel cut off from it because of um, because of what their teachers might have said, or you know, uh, studied having to study proof rock in college, you know, <laughs> and 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 getting tested on it. And no offense to T.S. Eliot, that's, that's a hell of a poem, right? But <laughs> But when I was studying it at the University of Michigan, I, I didn't love it. I hated it. And so why is that? Why is poetry taught this way? You know, it, as if it's somehow kind of a, a code that you crack. Um, I just don't buy it, even, even, when, even when it's difficult. Um, and so I say, uh, read poetry without somebody over your shoulder telling you, you know, what it supposedly means, work, you know, work it out yourself. And I think you get a lot more out of it. That's my manifesto. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Have you uh, ever read The Beginning of Spring all the way through by Penelope Fitzgerald? Um, the Beginning of Spring is uh, one of the great novels of my recent life. And um yes. I have read, read it all the way through, even though I, the first time I read it a couple of years ago, three, four years ago now, I, I just, I knew how important the book was going to be to me so that I, I slowed down. And finally I was like, well, I, you know, I have 18 pages left. I'm going to finish this. So <laughs> I, I started it over because I just, you know, I just wanted to postpone uh, knowing. And uh, it's a, you know, we could geek out on Penelope Fitzgerald for <laughs> forever, couldn't we? Mm -hmm. So we we learned a lot about a lot of different spaces um, that you inhabit as a um, a writer and a reader. Um, so your office is one. In, uh, can you can you talk about your office a little bit? Because we really do get a little bit of of a um, an inside look at your. Uh, at your office, <laughs> well, I have a little. I have a little, um, uh, like a studio space in a in an old uh, railroad hotel in White River Junction, um, Vermont. And uh, a lot of this book was written during, you know, the pandemic, obviously, which still goes on. But it was written. You know, some of it, at least, uh, was written at the height of the pandemic, when, you know, when we were sort of uh, when we were on lockdown, obviously. And, you know, there were some mandate, at least in Vermont, that only essential workers could be moving around. And I, I was not an essential worker, but I also didn't want to stay home. I, um, I need to be away from home to work often. And uh, so I'd go into the hotel where I was completely alone in this old rambling, shining like hotel. And uh, I'd just be sitting there, you know, <laughs> the only person. And it was, um, it was weird. And it was uh, quiet and, and lonely, and I loved it. And uh, I, I think if there's any like, kind of, for, for, you know, whatever interest it might be, like the, this book comes out of that sensibility, you know, like this, the kind of like feeling, um, you know, kind of alone in a big, big old hotel. I love that idea. Um, and I, wa I want to ask you one more thing about... I want to choose something from the night section. Um, so Alan Grossman. Uh -huh. 
and weeping. Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about weeping? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, <laughs> the woman on the bridge over the Chicago River. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the title of that poem speaks for itself, right? The woman on the bridge over the Chicago River. And uh, it's a poem um, uh, about weeping, you know, and it starts out, everything's weeping. The trees are weeping, the grass is weeping, the wind is weeping, the, the sun is weeping. I don't, you know, everything's weeping. I don't have it in front of me, but the moon <laughs> is weeping, everything's weeping. Insects are weeping, horses are weeping, every, you know, and including this, this incredible line in that poem that really resonated. I mean, I think I think part of the thing with this and with so many other, you know, writers, you know, moments in writing we're talking about is, you know, is that we can't help, and I don't think this is like a like an ego thing or a, you know, or you know, kind of a narcissistic thing or whatever to to turn inward when when a piece of literature gets under your skin, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a there's a moment in. Um, in the, that Alan Grossman poem where he says something like, you know, it's a, a small boy is listening to his parents make love in the next room. And there's like a kind of weeping sound there. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, he says something along the lines of the weeping of his own begetting. And it's just an incredible, um, incredible uh, image or even just detail really. And, uh, and then the poem shifts from all that weeping to um, very specific, another very specific instance of weeping where um, the poet is remembering it as a young boy, uh, seeing a woman standing on a, br a bridge over the Chicago River and crying into the river. And um, it's, uh, it's just an image that, that, that has stuck with him all those years. And it, um, it got me thinking about how those people that we have seen weeping in public mm -hmm. where it's like where everything, any inhibition that you have has gone away because it takes a lot to weep in public. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so, but we've all seen it. Maybe we've done it. Right. And, and just what, what does it take to strip away all those inhibitions? It's weird. I was since this, since this book has, um, since I finished it, I was sitting in a hotel in Boston on New Year's Eve. I hate New Year's Eve. <laughs> I, I, I like to, I like to, if like you know, my friends and family at a party, I, I, which they were, I, um, I, uh, I sat in the lobby of the hotel and I was reading. And it was really pretty late at night. It was, it was just a lot of chaos going on, and this, uh, this, this young woman was um, sitting uh, in a few chairs, you know, on the other couch, and just crying her eyes out, and. Uh, it was just, you know, it's incredibly um, intimate, you know, and you don't know what to do. Like, do you, do you comfort, you know? Um, luckily, the guy behind the desk tried, and that was nice. I was sort of paralyzed. <laughs> anyway, the point is, I guess, that I got me thinking about what, um, you know, what that kind of sorrow means when you just let it go and, and where you are doesn't matter. And I think that poem sort of speaks to that. And uh, yeah, I was just th thinking about the times in my life when I've seen people do that. 
this same uh, chapter has my one of my favorite moments in the book. There are many favorite moments, but this is one of them where you say, I bought this copy of The Woman on the Bridge over the Chicago River in Iowa City at a store that no longer exists. Not a store, really, just the house of an old man. He'd put books in a milk crate on his front porch. If you found something you liked, you took it. Stuffed a buck or two under the floor mat where there were always other stray dollars he never collected. That's that's just something so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you know, I'm obsessed. Yes. Yeah, of where you where you buy the book, you know, where you found the book, and and I think, you know, I know you feel, I know you know, you do this too. Like you just you know where you got that book that you love. Yeah, and since we both haunt a lot of used bookstores. You know, usually it has. To, it's usually not for me a new bookstore. You know, it's usually <laughs> I like to read a book someone's read or cast off or forgotten about and you know sold or dropped off at a used bookstore for free or whatever. And uh, I just I I you know I one of the favorite my favorite places in the whole world are used bookstores, and uh, it just breaks my heart when they close. Yeah. So please go out to your local used bookstore and buy like 10 books because because <laughs> these people like it's the labor of love. Like, why would you why would you run a used bookstore? You think to, to you know, to 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 barely make a living? There's no, you know. Yeah. So, so please. <laughs> and this book is full, full of um of where I bought, you know, this used bookstore and that used bookstore. And um I just I find that they're, you know the greatest places in the world and and they're not like antique stores which are all kind of you know mm-hmm. prissy and rarefied at least some of the you know mm-hmm. high high-end antique stores used bookstores don't have a lot of um attitude <laughs> well but that's the truth about this book so it's it's very hard to explain to people or it will be very hard to explain to people um <laughs> tell me but no but then but then it just it it makes sense. I mean, it's it is um, it is about the reading life. It is about the writing life in a way too. I mean, of course, and it is about your family and your mom, and and even about um, your childhood, your brother, your teacher, your you know this this place where you can you know leave a couple of dollars under the mat and take a book. I mean, it's about so many different things and they they all sort of um combine and so you called it a memoir which I thought was very interesting I didn't expect you to call it a a, a memoir a memoir in essays but that's that's what it is so it's about so many different things of uh, so many different parts of a life yeah memoir. I'm a <laughs> you know I I run away from the word memoir but then I realize that that you know, yes, it's what it is. It just isn't what you normally might think of as one. And and you know, I, I I've used this phrase before, you know, and I think maybe I overuse it. But the idea of just sort of a, a reluctant memoir, at least that's what the last one was. I don't think it's what this one was actually reluctant. It just it's a acknowledgement that reading and and thinking about um, other people's words are intrinsic to my own existence as 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 um blown up as that sounds you know intrinsic to my own walking around let's say 
you know, like it's just constant. And and again, you know, I made this joke before, but I have a friend, my good friend, she was a yoga teacher and she always tells me, you know, you don't live in the present. And I say, exactly, right? This is like my whole, my whole point is not to live in the present, right? But, but in a way, the, the reading that I do and the reading you do and the reading maybe somebody listening does, I'm sure, is as much a part of the forward momentum of, as, of their life as anything else. And even when that reading sends you back to the past, you know what I mean? I think that's a for like remembering is a forward act. It's not a it's not a backwards act. That's that's if that makes any I don't know if that makes sense. It doesn't make sense to me. That makes total that's sense. What I, that's that's what I like remembering is sort of a you know, as a verb of 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 real of action as opposed to something passive. That's why you are an essential worker. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Peter Orner is the author of the essay collection, Still No Word From You. His previous collection of essays is Am I Alone Here? Notes on Living to Read and Reading to Live. He's also the author of two novels and three-story collections, including Maggie Brown and others. Peter Orner is the director of creative writing at Dartmouth College. He's the co-host of the book public series, The Lonely Voice, with Peter Orner. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. We had help this week from David Martin Davies. I'm Yvette Benavides. 